You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode number four. Today, we're talking with Chamundi Phoenix about what we've learned in 15 years of taking pulses and looking at tongues. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. I'm Fika Chum. Today, our guest is Chamundi Phoenix. Hi Chamundi. Hi there. It's great to have you with us to discuss pulses and tongues. Chamundi works at Energy Medical Clinic in Narragan in Melbourne. She started work there at the ripe age of 15, where she was a work experience student, and graduated from a Chinese medicine degree in 2006. So she has a little more than 15 years of experience taking pulses and looking at tongues, and we're excited to have this conversation with her today. It's a pleasure. The Heavenly Tea Podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Tea Podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. Okay, so we're here today with Chamundi Phoenix to talk about what we've learned in 15 years of taking pulses and looking at tongues. And I thought that I'd start with a question, I guess that might seem obvious or might not seem obvious, but in the context of a consultation, what do you start with? Do you start with pulse or do you start with tongue? Like, Which one do you do first? I actually start with questioning personally because I found that when I took the pulse and looked at the tongue first, I was entering the initial conversation with my client with a whole bunch of assumptions in my head. So I really um, focus on questioning and and, uh, really trying to connect with the patient first and then usually I will feel for the pulse. Uh, The pulse, apart from being such an important diagnostic tool and all of that sort of thing, is a beautiful opportunity to connect in with the patient and to get an understanding of their chi and blood and the movement within their body for the first time. Mm. And that just makes me um, think of when we were discussing this to do this topic with you, that you mentioned you can experience the energetic movement in the patient through the pulse. Mm. So is that something you want to have spoken to them first before you experience? I do, yeah. I find that... um, I find that otherwise I just have an assumption about what I should be looking for or what I should be feeling rather than being an empty, unassuming vessel. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the energetic movement in the pulse? Mm. So I speak, um, one thing that I love about Chinese medicine is that I feel that the terminology that we use is very much like poetry. I'm very attracted to the poetic description of pulse qualities. And when I put my hand on someone else, it's as if I'm entering into an observation to watch them dance almost. I see it as a dance. I see that that movement of G and blood in the pulse as a dance. And in the same way that the uh, a dancer might have particular characteristics they might have um, uh, very sharp, um, sudden movements. Some dancers are incredibly fluid. In this same way, this is how I approach the pox. So I try to view the dance of chi and blood inside the person's body 
and get a feel for that rather than imposing my understanding of um, this is a choppy pulse or, or um, this is a hollow pulse or wanting to name and, and fit it into a diagnostic criteria rather than to enter a state of, uh, I guess, um, empty mindfulness to receive what, what the pulse has to show me. Mm-hmm. Do you find that when you take pulse that way and you're not so looking for the anchors of those qualities like wiry or choppy mm-hmm. and the traditional meanings that you're more fluidly able to filter through the diagnosis that is there to see in, in the unique way of each patient? I think it allows an objectivity, mm-hmm. which is essential. I think often when, uh, or within my own practice, and especially in my earlier years, I was desperately trying to be right. I was desperately trying to find the answer uh, and fit it into my nice little box of this particular person is diagnosis X. Very neat. Uh, and these sorts of methods have their, their place. But I found that that method of taking pulses actually evolved very naturally for me after I was a bit disenchanted with the way that pulses were being taught to me and explained to me. And I actually needed to remove all of the TCM terminology from my study of the pulse and actually just to feel in and try and imagine if the chi and blood is moving in my patient in this particular capacity what would that mean for my emotional state? How would that feel inside my body? Um, and, and in that capacity, um, you can then have an, a, a lot of diagnostic information that you can cross-reference with your questioning. I think it's interesting where the point that you made about letting go of the TCM ideas you know I think an example would be you know in the first year or two out of practice I think liver chi stagnation is a way overdiagnosed pattern of disharmony that someone comes in I'm stressed I've got headaches and then we feel their pulse and we're like oh that's a wiry pulse even if it's not a wiry pulse we go oh it must be wiry because that's how a liver chi stagnant pulse is meant to feel and it could be that their pulse you know, it's quite weak, it could be really soft, it might not have any wiry qualities at all. Um, and I think that those prejudices take a little while to clear because, as you say, you know, like it's hard to know what you're feeling and I think um, a, lot of, a lot of people feel, you know, you're at school and they say, okay, it's going to take you 30 years to learn pulses and, um, you know, you're left with this feeling of, oh, my God, how, like, how am I meant to use this tool effectively in practice? And, um, and I think that especially in the early days, you know, you've got the conversation around, you know, where you're getting some ideas of, around what might be going on for the patient. You feel their pulse. It may or may not match up with what they've said. And then you go even that next step and you look at their tongue and you could end up with three very different and seemingly unconnected pieces of information that you've then got to try and, and work out. And I think that's the, that is a really big challenge for practitioners because I think very regularly 
even, you know, for all of us who've been in practice now for 10 years, I think we're still very regularly faced with, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? Do you have a fallback position? Like, right, I don't know what I'm going to do. What does this mean? Yeah, how do you reconcile when you've got very different tongue, pulse and questioning information? I usually come back to uh, just simplicity and clarity. So I, I come back to a series of recognition that the, the patient has come asking me uh, to get rid of some pain or um, a pain in the larger sense of the word, uh, pain in, in a particular regard. Um, where is this pain coming from? What are the things that are um, supporting the resolution of this pain and what are the things that are working against the resolution of this pain? And sometimes what's working against the resolution of that pain might be um, some damp that's very clear on the tongue um, or some deficiency that's very clear on the pulse. Um, yeah, so by um, coming back to basics and simplicity, I feel I'm able to hone in on what's needed, maybe not forever, but what's appropriate right now in this consultation. What can I do for this person right now? I think that's a really good point. Um, and I, one thing that I'm finding, I was reflecting on this topic in the last week or so leading up to our meeting, and um, I was thinking about how I go about feeling pulses and realising that I really don't put a lot of detail into my pulse diagnosis at the moment, like the last couple of years in particular, the thing that I focus on is really like, you know, putting my fingers onto the pulse position, just making an immediate connection with the patient. But really what I'm doing is I'm looking for the thing that's most obvious. I'm looking for what is, what is jumping out at me and I might really go for two or three things that I might feel and it could be, okay, well, there is no pulse at all that I'm feeling on the lung position or um, that the overall quality is just astoundingly weak or that, you know, I feel like the pulse is kind of punching into my fingers and, and I guess over the years that how I would describe that has changed as well. And the same with the tongue, you know, I get someone to stick their tongue out and it might only be two or three seconds and I'm only really looking at a couple of key things um, because I found that having more information and me spending more time you know, ascertaining those minute details for me didn't work. As a practitioner, it didn't lead me to giving a better treatment, to prescribing better herbs, to, you know, getting a better acupuncture treatment going. Like it just, it only served to burden me with more information. Mm. Well, I think often, you know, with things like pulse, Let's say I've asked someone a bunch of questions and I'm expecting them to have liver cheese stagnation because that's what that circumstance would do to me and be in my body. So then you feel the pulse and it's not that wiry at all. And I think what it does is it indicates for you this person's thresholds or the spaces in which they can flow with a certain dance in their body. Mm. And um, I, I hear, hear the pulse musically like that too, like it's a feeling and it's the emotions of the organs of where I'm taking the pulses and and tend to just go from there with 
the feeling that I get that it's like, well, when I take your pulse, when I talk to you, you know, you talk up all this optimism, but when I take your pulse, I feel this exhausted hopelessness in the the lack of force in the beat or something. So that would become the information for me in that respect, unless I have queer uh, qualities, you know, like the choppy or the wiry or the... Usually they're there too. Um, but at the end of the day, we need to know, well, if someone has a particular circumstance, they walk in the door, how are they actually going to cope with that and how's their body going to face that circumstance and what kind of chi and movement is it going to come up with? I find it incredibly useful as well um, to move away from uh, the pulse positions as particular organs and instead look at, uh, feel the pulse as the surge of chi and blood through the three jowls. I was having a conversation with um, one of the other practitioners that works here at our clinic the other day, and we were talking about a particular type of tongue. And um, in in a patient case that we were discussing, it was that really pale purple, that light mauve coloured tongue. And I just said to her, you know what, good luck with that, because I've seen that tongue maybe two or three times in the last 10 years in clinic and I have no idea what you're going to do about it because I like my experience with that type of tongue and I think everyone has their own kind of nemesis patterns that come up in clinic but for me that is that pale mauve tongue and I just think oh my god like what what am I going to do like I've I've had one patient that had that mauve tongue I I tried everything three years of like tweaking herbal formulas and acupuncture treatments and the thing that actually got her tongue to be pink again was sorting out how she was going to disconnect from her narcissistic mother Mm. and that process took her about 12, 18 months and after she disconnected from her narcissistic mother, her tongue went pink. And I was like, how do you, but how do you replicate that with an acupuncture treatment or a herbal formula? I have no mm-hmm. idea. But I wonder if there's any kind of like nemesis tongues. If a patient opens their mouth and you, like your heart sinks and you just think, oh, what am I going to do? Is it, do you ever have that experience? I do. I do often wind, uh, very windy tongues, especially the, um, uh, the taut, deviated, Hard tongues, um, I, I really struggle with mm. softening that up. Mm. Um, it, it, mm. I'll be interested to hear. <laughs> I, think, I think you're both describing tongues that indicate some kind of internal restriction or tension somewhere. So that tension's popping up in the colour of the tongue in the mauve tongue case and in yours the tautness. You know, there's something deeply tight inside somewhere in their body in their soul in their heart and yeah it's definitely um a place where with my treatments that's really where the shamanic background would come in to basically saying well you can't really this is not a physical treatment that you need this is a heart treatment or a talking or a yeah realization treatment I think something I also notice in relation to the shin um, is that 
there are a number of people who have a very scarlet tip. Mm. And we've been told again and again, oh, this is due to heart fire, this is heart yin deficiency, this is heart blood deficiency. Um, and even, you know, when I went to China as a student, uh, all of the professors laughed at me and said, no, no, your only issue is heart fire. You know, this is it. But I actually uh, see it now as an old injury, or it can be an old injury uh, to the qi and, and, and yin and blood of the heart, so an injury to the shin, and especially young children who've grown up in, um, you know, an environment of trauma or lots of yelling, lots of stress. I see that uh, incredibly red, raw tip that doesn't seem to really change. Uh, even if they're living a, a balanced life and meditating and, and seeing quite um, free and unrestricted. I see that too in people who have a family history of heart disease, but they might not, it might not necessarily mean that they're, you know, stripping their clothes off and running through the hills manically raving or like there's some, <laughs> how the, the legend goes, but I think that, um, Sometimes it can show um, just a real physiological tendency to inflamed heart or inflamed blood vessels. It doesn't always, to me, indicate the shin level. But I, I, I do agree with you. I think that um, the body remembers trauma and that one of the places that it remembers and it displays that remembering is on the tongue. Mm. The tongue being the extension of the heart. Chimundi, mm. you were also telling us that you look for certain things in the state of the tongue, the yin, the blood. Um, do you want to talk about in general what the tongue shows you? Mm. Well, these days I'm obviously biased to my practice. I see a, a huge amount of yin deficiency. This would be the, the primary uh, thing that I seem to be seeing at the moment is a lot of stomach and kidney yin deficiency, particularly. Um, and so the, the state of the tongue coat uh, and the state of the tongue body in terms of rawness uh, versus moistness uh, is incredibly interesting to me. And what about the state of the yang in the tongue? The yang is a tricky one. I, I really feel it's a tricky one. Um, or certainly uh, when I was younger. Nowadays, I do notice um, a slightly different tinge of whiteness. I remember really not being able to understand what the difference between a pale tongue and a whitish pale tongue was. Um, and nowadays, I feel like I have a little bit more of a grasp on that. However, I really feel that when we're talking about young on the tongue, we're really... Uh, I gather it through the state of the other excesses. So if a tongue is um, big and soggy and a bit whitish, then we can, uh, and, and the pulse is deficient, then I'll say that that's a young deficient tongue. But it's only been through um, both my questioning and uh, referencing the pulse that I've really, and, and over years, that I've been able to understand um, why a, a, a young shoe pulse, uh, sorry, tongue might look different from a cold, damp tongue. 
And what about the coating, the geographic tongue, the cracking, coat, no coat? Well, this is what I'm really interested in. Mm. So um, when it comes to the, um, say, transverse cracking, so what looks like uh, checkerboards, jagged checkerboards of, of tongues, um, my mentor would say that this is real damage to the to the genia, to the fluids. And I have always associated that with um, a number of uh, chronic inflammatory gastrointestinal diseases. In terms of the, the coat becoming incredibly patchy and geographic, I've seen uh, that in some people that can actually happen overnight uh, due to shock and trauma. Um, but I only ever notice um, those quick changes in people who already uh, struggle in and out with this sort of um, this patchiness, this geographical coating. Um, sometimes the um, the tongue can get to a stage where it actually looks like it's been moth-eaten. Do you know what I'm referring mm-hmm. to? Yeah. It, it's not a, a round-looking uh, tongue. It's <laughs> actually it's it's a piece of shredded curtains. And uh, I'm sure that I'm sure you might also see that in a lot of autoimmune mm-hmm. uh, diseases. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes I mean, even still, I do find from time to time certain tongues a little bit alarming or a little bit shocking, and I just think, oh my goodness, what's what's happened to this person that has eroded their tongue in such a way, and how would that look on the rest of the inside of their body? And um, yeah, it's it definitely. I I find that the tongue gives a very a very clear idea of what's happening. But then I also find that the tongue can change quite dramatically in a very quick period of time. Like I've I've definitely, um, and this is something that I learned from Heather Bruce, which was you know just keep rechecking the tongue. You know, you get someone onto the table put in a needle or, you know, do do a little bit of massage or put a cup on or something, recheck the tongue and it will change as your treatment progresses. And um, and that was something that was a really valuable thing for me to learn because I remember being told at, um, at school that the tongue really doesn't change very quickly. It can take a couple of days to change. And learning that and being able to see for myself that, oh, wow, I can actually affect some amazing change in a person's tongue within the space of half an hour was a really empowering thing for me to learn because I could really see physical evidence that what I was doing was making a difference to someone. And so if I see someone with that kind of moth-eaten tongue and my heart sinks a little bit for them, but then, you know, get them onto the table, do what I do with them and then for that tongue to look like there's, you know, little bits that are filled in and the colour is more even, it's it's a really rewarding thing for me. So tongue in particular is a really re- rewarding part of um, giving an acupuncture treatment. I find it to be also incredibly useful for the patient. So for these people who have a tendency to get moth-eaten, it's a very clear <laughs> tongue tongue sign to, um, to, to have a look at in the morning, you know. So I've got patients who might see me... Um, uh, you know, irregularly, 
But when they start to see a little patch starting to peel off, they know that it's time to quickly book in and get some help. Yep, the moths are back. I'm going to come back and see you. (laughs) We were talking with Peter a couple of episodes ago about the way in which you're interacting with the patient whilst you're feeling their pulse and how that that can change it can change the pulse and you um we mentioned a little bit about how you know that you could say something to them or ask them a question and depending on whether or not it changed a particular quality of the pulse would guide what you would do with the treatment you know is the treatment for an absent heart pulse to go on a holiday or is it some herbal medicine you know depending on whether or not asking them hey when's your next holiday brings their pulse back do you have any um any rules or any um approaches that you use to the talking that goes on whilst you're feeling the pulse Mm -hmm. you were kind of like a no talk while i'm feeling the pulse kind of (laughs) kind of person um Really great question. I'm both. (laughs) It really depends on the person. For almost every patient, I will approach them and uh, open the channels very gently, you know, from maybe the elbow. I might palpate down, just sort of open up that uh, channel and hold their wrist in hand. Um, During this time, if the patient has been uh, an intense talker, then we might still be talking and that talking peters off as we kind of enter this gentle listening space together. Uh, For other people, um, they're quite quiet and attentive. Um, But I I try to approach it in a way so that they're not too interested in what it is that I'm feeling. I don't tend to... um, change myself to uh, change my opinions too much in terms of the questioning aspect but I try to settle us both down into this um, very sweet listening space and I try to wait until um, I feel I've got a good idea of where the, the midline is of, of that pulse quality. What about you, Fee? What's your favourite way of taking pulses? I like to take the pulse uh, early on in the treatment. So when the patient comes in, sometimes I'll just start with their pulse. Often they're a little chatty at that point. Um, And sometimes based on the pulse, I'll get them straight on the table, but that's not usually a first appointment approach. Uh, in the first appointment, usually we have a bit of a chat first before I breach that barrier of, okay, I'm going to touch your body now. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll pick up things for a little while longer before taking the pulse. And then when I do take the pulse, I usually scan through the three jowl first, the left and right, the three jowl, and then just, yeah, just picking up those qualities that are kind of standing out as being out of place within that person's body field. Within the idea that I get of their harmony, I'm trying. I'm feeling for the things that are out of place of that harmony. They're not in it, and then to try and um, weave those back in. I guess would be the the aim of the acupuncture and the herbal medicine. I'm going to ask a question on behalf of our student and graduate listeners. 
we've had a lot of students in the clinic over the years and one of the things that is a common recurring theme is around how to identify a choppy pulse. I'll, I'll ask you, Fee, first, how do you, what do you, how do you identify a choppy pulse? Um, I see a lot of choppy pulses. That's probably one of the most, I don't know, common qualities that I find with uh, women in Melbourne. Um, yeah, so for me, the choppy pulse has, it, it's kind of what I think of as a, like a, a mild blood stagnation that's coming from a bit of deficiency. Um, and it has a, a slightly, very slightly irregular sense of force to the way that each pulse flicks out or taps, taps onto the skin. Um, so the actual wave of the pulse to me, it's like if you think, I think it's called choppy because if you look at a choppy ocean, the waves are irregular. Some are thin, some are wide, some are, you know, the cascading in at a slightly different rate to each other. It's not an even beat. Um, but the moder- the variations in the force of the wave and the regularity of the beat are, are really mild in the choppy pulse. Um, otherwise you're looking at a far more, uh, serious excess blood stag condition. Um, but when it's just kind of there, but it's just sort of, it's like a weak punch if I can say, because it contains the strength of the punch and the weakness at the same time, and it's kind of thrown with a bit of irregularity. For me, there's a real drag with the toppy pulse. That's how... That there's, the, there's the punch, and then there's the... <laughs> you know? <laughs> this sort of scraping door. I was just needed know? to see that. Okay. <laughs> it was in the face. A scraping to me, is, is choppy and certainly more indicative of those excess patterns that you talk about. Um, but for me, a choppy pulse is actually one of the easiest uh, pulses to feel because it's so unique. Was it always that way for you? No, and it certainly didn't help that at the time that I was um, observing, you know, my mentor had been in practice for decades and so he, he would say, here, Chamundi, feel this. Can you feel the deep, cold blockage on the left colon? And, and I will be looking at him with a, um, you know, feigned, feigned nodding. I just not, yes, yes, I do. Thank you. Thank you. Just trying to get as much experience as possible. Um, I think that it was only when I was able, as we said at the start of the podcast, to drop my assumptions about what I was meant to be feeling and actually um, step into a space of receivership uh, that I was able to understand that, oh, no, this is rough under my fingers. This is not like any other um, pulse quality. I was actually talking to a second-year student the other day and this, this question came up. And she said to me, I don't, I don't know pulses. Oh, I don't, I don't know pulses. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with pulses. And, um, it was quite interesting because I asserted that she did know pulses. And, uh, you know, I asked her to put her, her hands on her pulse and I said, all right, is it, is it superficial or deep? She said, oh no, it's about, it's about in the middle. And I said, great, is it smooth or, or rough? You know, is it wide or is it thin? 
all of these very simple questions um, that most of us can answer. Actually, I think at um, quite an early stage of schooling, you can answer these questions. And um, at the end of, of these questions and method, you have a, a very clear answer, which then you can cross-check with tongues and, and question. I think pulse is a lot um, easier and more practically applicable than um, yeah, we give it credit for, we as an industry, mm. and uh, in educating our students. And like you said before, um, with, oh, it'll take 30 years to learn the pulse and, you know, I don't know if you guys saw, I saw a photo on Facebook recently of a shop front in downtown Sydney, which is traditional Chinese medicine centre, and then the subtext is, don't tell us what's wrong with you, come in here and we'll tell you what's wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that there is this mythology, you know, tied into pulses that uh, it's really only in the master's domain. And although it it certainly is um, within that, domain, uh, even the, the younger students can use it um, and get really great benefit from it. It's interesting when you put it like that because I know that if we had a, a bunch of different cats in a room and you gave people no no preconceived language to describe how the cats feel and then just had to pat them and write down four or five words about the quality of what the cat felt like, that they would be able to read the cat somewhat from doing that and that yet when we we sit down with a pulse once we've learned these 27 pulse qualities and whatnot we find it really hard to uh, describe what we're feeling yet we're just feeling the person and that wave as you said um and and being able to return to those basics is it's always going to give you some kind of information about the person even if you don't know that you can feel pulses it's interesting, um, the comment that you made about your mentor saying, oh, can you feel the deep cold blockage in the left colon? <laughs> Is there any, like, specific things that you feel in pulses that almost seem second nature to you now but you didn't know at the start? Oh, I'm sure there's so much. Can you feel someone's deep cold blockage in their, like, can you locate a disease within someone's body by feeling on their pulse? No, I don't think so. Um, I can locate flags for further investigation, and that's how I use the pulse. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things. There is um, one particular pulse quality um, that sits between uh, the heart and liver. On, on the left-hand side between the, the upper and middle. Um, and there is a, a particular quality that when it's quite um, it's bound, to me it feels like a, a, a pulsing knot um, and the, both the upper and the middle pulse will not quite be there. It's kind of trapped between these levels. Um, I do see that as an immediate emotional uh, stagnation uh, so something that so that might be uh, a catharsis that's ready to be released, um, or maybe someone you know had a terrible phone call before they came in, or maybe they're they're working through a, a larger um, issue, you know. But this for me is one of the the things that I that tips me off. 
to then start, um, you know, moving into the to the Shen realm. What about feeling pain in different parts of the body in the pulse? I personally don't. I usually feel pain as generalised tension mm. um, and then uh, wanting to understand whether that's uh, more cold uh, or hot. Mm, I don't tend to feel a, a particular area. There are some, um, certainly with people who have uh, large growths or, um, uh, for example, um, uh, people with kidney cysts and, and things like that, um, I've certainly made connections there of a kind of, um, again, hard little um, round, smooth knots, you know, in that base position. Um, I find that sometimes I'll have a patient and I'm feeling their pulse, and particularly on the left, on the left hand, that you know you're sort of typically in that lung line region, and that you end up the pulse just kind of like travels up, and you're up on the actual femur eminence there, and you're like, oh my goodness, what's your pulse doing up there? Um, and I realised over time that that was it was a one to one correlation in the patients I was feeling that pulse quality that. It was a really, really quite pronounced anxiety is what drove the pulse to be sort of further up onto the, onto the hand. Um, and that's a really, that was something that I discovered for myself and I, I'm very sure that many other people have discovered for themselves as well. But I was, I was quite, I was a few years out when I realised that and I thought, oh, I think I might actually be able to get this pulsing happening within a fairly short period of time, as in like less than 30 years. <laughs> I felt I felt really disheartened by that whole 30-year comment and I think it's for some people it's not useful to have that because, as you say, some even someone without training can feel a pulse and can get a sense of is it strong, is it weak, mm-hmm. is it thin, is it fat, like that, and that gives a lot of information. I think also you can just generally pick up on the state of the patient by being in the room with them. So you can also feel the, the happiness or the struggle or the effort that the body's making that it's tired from or the, the wall it wants to punch down. Or you, you can feel those really human kind of stories, I think, in the pulse as well. And I think also there's, um, there's obviously um, some people who have a real interest in pulse and have dedicated a lot more effort and attention to the pulse, you know, someone like um, Anu Vasilis, for example, who, you know, gets into that real minute detail on what this position means and so forth. But I think that's um, definitely a topic for another episode. We are really happy to have had you here today, Chamundi, and I think um, I think it's been a really interesting chat to hear more about your experience and to, um, I guess, to collate the experience of the three of us and what we've found in the last 15 years. We'd love to hear more about what you think, our dear listeners, um, and you can do this on our Facebook page. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye for now. Bye for now. Thanks, Jim. Such a pleasure.